Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. by StarCityGames.com. Not only are they the home of the top content and coverage on the web, they're also the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies. For more information, visit StarCityGames.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords Unlimited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, I'm going to put a hard one on you here. Is this the best draft format of all time. Wow, we're just doing this right off the bat, huh? We're just doing it right off the bat. Yes, I think, and this is probably the hottest take of them all so far, we are a week and a half into this draft format, and I'm ready to call Throne of Eldraine the best limited format of all time. I think I'm there too. I was there independently of you, and when you asked me, I was just like, yeah, I think it is. So why is that? What what, what are your reasons? I think the fact that everything is viable and that there's about 15 viable decks, and the decks all feel different from each other like some black green decks feel different than other black green decks even though they all have food payoffs there's so many cards that are the perfect power level that incentivize you to do things that makes the drafting experience so unique and you get so rewarded for doing what you and i like to do which is bob and weave and find your lane like that's a hundred percent the optimal thing to do in this format is put off finding your lane as long as possible yeah i've had a lot of people be like well how can you think this is the best draft format because like you can't draft like three, four, five color nonsense decks. And I think that's largely true, though. You know, we're not that many drafts deep. So there are more possibilities to explore in this format, though. I think the multicolor decks are going to be few and far between. But like, as you said, all 10 color pairs feel viable. All five monocolor decks feel viable. They all feel different. Drafting is incredibly rewarding and fun. The gameplay is incredibly intense and difficult and fun. And Aggro is good, control is good, and everything in between is good. I, I can't remember the last time we had a format like that. Yeah, and that you and I felt great about playing aggro. Also, I just played a three-color deck today in Trophied, so maybe maybe it's out there. I played a blue-red deck splashing green and black the other day and Trophied. Ooh, nice. Yeah, well, that's because, as we'll get to later, Golden Egg is the truth. It really is. Speaking of trophies, if we check in on that trophy leaderboard, I am 12 drafts deep, a paltry 12 drafts compared to your 37 Gs. <laughs> I am 27 and 9 overall with four trophies and a 75% win rate. How about you? I picked it up, Ben. I'm 37 drafts deep, 78 and 33. I have 11 trophies. I think something like eight of my last 11 drafts were trophies, and I have a 70% win rate. Finally broke through, got over that bad variance. Yeah, man, it was tough. I mean, I had a lot of people smack me around and tell me to stop feeling sorry for myself, which was good, but I was it was getting me down. I, I don't know why I t- tie my personal worth to my Magic the Gathering win rate. It's an embarrassing thing to do. <laughs> it's difficult if you're in content creation to do that yeah yeah it's true especially when we like make it such a part of our show and our streams to like have it out there you know right 
All right. So something that's super unique for this format that we, I don't think I've ever really talked about. I mean, maybe we sort of touched on it when like mono red was a thing in M20, but mono colored decks are here and they are here to stay and they are good in Throne of Eldraine. And I think this is one of the most complicated, difficult parts of this format. I mean, mana bases in general, as we're going to talk about, but monocolor decks specifically. So that's what we're going to be talking about all day. We are mono, a mono, monocolored. I, I was trying to figure out some clever title here. Ben. You got anything for me? No, no good? Okay. Uh, so, but before we get into any of that, we've got to talk about the Lords of Limited Patreon. Patreon.com slash Lords of Limited, where you can give back to the show if you so choose. And a lot of people have chosen to give back to the show this week. And we are very, very excited to welcome a lot of people. I got nothing to talk about here, how good the Patreon is, how good the Discord is, how what our tiers are. We got no time for that because we have so many people to welcome to the fold this week. Ben, are you ready to help me out here? We're going to be welcoming Daniel. Ricardo. Jason. John. James. Austin. Pat. Unbeatable Tuna. Sam. Carl. Jonathan. Jesse. Jeff. Tommy. Adam. Jacob. Sebastian. Songkla. Michael, Matthew, Billy, Jose, Gregory, David, Hal, Ryan, Killian, Joshua, Carl, Chris, Caleb, Josh, Glenn, Fabius, Adam, Sean, Chang, Anthony, Garrick, Tom, Stephen, Alberto, Carter, David, Jace, Doug, Matthew, Josh, Parker, John, Luis, Garrett, John, Jack, George, Victor, Patrick, Rowan, Kyle, Max, Jonathan, and finally, Kenny. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah, cannot say thank you enough. If that is not a testament to the Discord and our podcast, I don't know what is. Amen. We are also now partnered with Coalesce Apparel and Design, Magic's newest apparel company. And as part of that, we have a gift code for you on their website, coalesceapparel.shop. And you can get 10% off your order, which pertains to any apparel on their website. And that code is LOL, all caps. You can head on over there, pick up your hashtag I'm with Ben or your hashtag I'm with Ethan, Lords of Limited t-shirt. All right. So diving right in here to the format where I think monocolor decks are not only very viable, they're intended to be drafted, and I think oftentimes can be some of the best decks that you'll see either on your side of the battlefield or your opponents. And I think this starts off with something that we started talking about last week, which was how important mana bases are to be considered even from really pick one of the draft format. I think that's sort of where, you know, you and I are coming down between like, well, do you want to take Bacon to a Pie first or Reeve Soul first as the best black common? Because, you know, one is double black and is going to commit you more to a color. So we're really thinking about mana bases so intensely really from the start. And I think one of the biggest reasons for me, and we sort of touched on this last week, and now I'm really full-fledged there, is that the reason to be monocolored is the uncommon hybrid cards. And I think these are much more looking like being like split cards of like, you know, Lock Dragon being either a mono blue or a mono red card, obviously a great engine for the blue red deck. So maybe that's not the best example, but like the fact that those cards are essentially colorless in your monocolored decks is so strong and it makes them easy to cast and you open yourself up to the possibility of four out of the total 10, right? There's going to be four quadruple blue hybrid cards among those 10 of, of that cycle. Well, right. And the Lock Dragon is a little more flexible than it appears on first glance, right? Because it goes in three out of the 15 decks. It goes mm -hmm. in mono blue, mono red, and blue red. Yeah, for sure. We're going to, a little later, we'll be looking at like Covetous Urge, which is the blue-black hybrid one, versus Drown in the Lock, which is the blue-black gold, like counterspell, removal, dual, instant speed. And how those sort of like 
one looks like it's more flexible than the other or keeps you more open than the other. But I think really we're leaning towards those hybrid cards as not only being like powerful cards to take early because they have such high upside, but actually fit into more decks than you might think. Yeah. Another huge reason to be monocolored is you get to maximize some of the colorless cards that there are in the format. Clockwork Servant is a big one. That's the three mana, two, three uncommon that cantrips if you cast it with adamant. Heraldic Banner has been really impressive in some monocolored decks, especially the aggressive slanted ones. It's a three mana artifact rock that gives the chosen colored creatures plus one plus O. And Hengewalker finally is a nice, not really payoff, but nice filler in monocolored decks that really lets you get there on a playable count. That's the three mana two two that has adamant and turns into a three three if you cast it with adamant. Yeah, I mean, Hengewalker, I think, is a perfect example of I think it's a card that's there in the boosters to be a reward for these monocolored drafters. You know, if if you're mono green, for instance, then there are two green cards in the pack. You take one of them. Probably by the time that pack makes its way back around to you, someone else has taken the other green card, but someone else is probably not going to be able to be interested in something like Hengewalker, and then you get to scoop that up on the wheel. So it's a nice card for the monocolored decks to get picks nine through 15. Another reason and I think this is going to be something we're going to continue to talk about, is you minimize your mana issues when you have two color decks. Last week, we talked about monocolored, and I think it's important to sort of say that when we are saying that, we don't mean only decks that are truly one color, but I think decks where your main color is probably 12 or 13 lands of that color or more. So if you've got a light splash, I think that still sort of falls under the umbrella of the decks that we're talking about here. But I think that when you minimize your mana issues, when you're able to you know have those adamant lands the one or two that you're playing come into play untapped on turn four when you're able to cast the four cmc hybrid uncommons on time i think that's a a nod for that but then really just easily enabling your adamant cards making sure that you don't have any sort of issues with your curve outs with your early plays like all that stuff i think is super super important to consider and is a reason why i think skewing towards one color more than another. Like I feel like we talk about like having a nine nine split is really not good. You built a deck today that was a nine eight mana base and we were both pretty upset about that. It was awful. You and I drafted together on stream and just having good mana is powerful. And nine eight felt so terrible after having a lot of good mana bases where I drafted deep into one color a lot of times in a row. And you just really feel that nine eight when you go back to it after drafting some of these heavy base color decks in Throne of Eldraine. Yeah. Another thing that you get out of this stuff is opening up the opportunity to have mana intensive rares or uncommons passed to you very late. So there's a lot of powerful CCC rares and there's just a lot of powerful one red, 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 like Thorbin, Hammer of the Fell or whatever that he's the one red, 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 two, four that adds two damage onto any red source that would deal damage to your opponent or their creatures. Getting past that fifth or sixth pick is a huge payoff for being heavy base red. Yeah, you're maximizing your adamant payoffs from individual colors. You're enabling the adamant lands, as we said. And if you successfully build a monocolored or near monocolored decks, you probably found a very open lane and your deck is likely very good. That's the thing I've found most important is just that if you're monocolored, a lot of the cards of that color work well together. Each monocolored deck has a very focused synergy and a very focused plan. And then oftentimes you can splash one or two cards of the color pair that goes along with whatever synergy is most prevalent in that monocolored version of the deck that you drafted. Right. Like I had a mono blue deck the other day that splashed for one copy of Mad Ratter, which is the three and a red one, two. When you cast your second spell for the turn, you make two one, one rats. I'm like slotted right into what my blue deck was trying to do 
But then, you know, wasn't that hard to just throw three mountains in the deck and through my card draw, be able to find it or whatever. And, you know, I think that's still a monocolor deck, but you're then really building on the synergies between that card and what that color pair is trying to do. Right. And I've had the opposite. I've had mono red splashing blue for improbable alliance, and it was still a draw cards theme. Yep. I mean, I think it's important to keep in mind what the color pairs are doing when you're doing that. But yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't really be like, well, you definitely want to go monocolor no matter what. No, I mean, if you've got powerful cards that are going to slot in and synergize really well with that deck, don't be afraid to run 13-4 or 12-5 or whatever. Absolutely. So we've got a breakdown here of a lot of the adamant or monocolored payoffs for each color at common. And we're going to kick things off with white. What do we have going on there? So while we're looking at this, we're going to be looking at the actual cards that have the text adamant on them. Also looking at what cards maybe skew your mana base a little bit. And then also what sort of the identity of that color is when it's by itself. So when we're looking at white... I think this color has the weakest incentive to be monocolored just on face value. Um, Ardenville Tactician can feel like one, I think. And I think it's important to keep in mind the mana cost of some cards. But as a one white, white card that you really want to be able to cast on three, this does sort of feel like a monocolored or, you know, skewing towards that as a strong base color card. Like, I, I don't want to play Ardenville Tactician in a deck where I have like fewer than 10 white sources, you know? Well, and there's also the incentive of on turn five, you almost want three white to be able to activate the ability, maybe get an attack and then still cast the tactician. Absolutely. That's a really good point, right? That this can feel like a not only a split card of one and a white and one white white, but that it could feel also like two triple white. That's a great point. I think there are a lot of adventure cards that feel that way that only have one pip in their cost, but are actually double colored. Or if they have two pips and then the adventure that you want to cast in the same turn, sometimes they feel like threes. Right, like Rimrock Knight can sometimes feel like a one red red card. Right, absolutely. Yeah. So the actual adamant cards in white aren't huge payoffs in my opinion. Ardenville Paladin being, I think, the most awkward one. This is the four mana two five that can be a three six if you pay its adamant cost. You know, it's a very defensive card. I think it's a strong sideboard card. I actually had a mono white deck today that sided in two copies of these to great effect. But it's a little, it has a, a lot of tension, I think, in what White's trying to do. Beyond that, there's Rally for the Throne that makes two one ones and gains you life if the Adamant is paid, and Silver Flame Ritual, which is the plus one plus one counter on each of your creatures, and then it's vigilant for all your creatures until end of turn if the Adamant was paid. Yeah, of those three, I've been the most impressed with Silver Flame Ritual in heavy white decks. But even so, like, it's not something where you're like, sick, I'm mono white and I'm running three Silver Flame Rituals. Like, that's a one of, in my opinion. Right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, you're pretty unhappy if you're running more than one. And then Mono White's identity, what, what, what is that? I think it's aggro beatdown. I haven't played Mono White yet, but I went through and looked through the Discord before we recorded this episode, and all the Mono White trophy decks I saw in there were all low to the ground, curve, fairy guide mothers, youthful knights, a bunch of good... White has a lot of good two-drop adventure cards, and then tacticians trapped in a tower. It was just everything was on the beatdown train. One of the most common questions I've been getting this week on stream is, is white still terrible? And glory, glory, hallelujah, it is not. Fairy Guide, Mother Flutterfox, Ardenville Tactician, Trapped in a Tower, all pack a huge, aggressive tempo punch. Yeah, and worth noting that almost all of those white decks had a copy of Heraldic Banner to give their team plus one, plus oh. They really sort of looked like soft versions of Mono White from Cube. Nice. Well, Heraldic Banner's making a mark in Mono White and Standard, so gotta be good enough for Limited. Absolutely. All right. How about blue? What's going on there? Vantress Paladin is the biggest adamant payoff there. So the difference between getting a four mana two two flyer or a four mana three three flyer, if you pay the adamant cost, is really huge. 
So being able to enable that consistently is really big, as well as getting those late as a mono blue, blue drafter is a really big payoff. So that card is Phantom Monster for those of you from the, the old days. <laughs> it's much more difficult to cast, but if you are mono blue, it really truly is Phantom Monster and getting wheeling Phantom Monsters is big game. And then there's Turn Into a Pumpkin as another payoff at Uncommon that gets you a food. That's pretty minor. Unexplained Vision Scrying 3 is super real, but I don't really feel like I need to be mono blued for that because that's more of a control card. And usually late in the game, you do have that triple blue, even in, you know, some a 9, 8 or a 10, 7 mana base or something. So the rest of those adamant payoffs are not super exciting, but I do think mono blue is a very good deck. I just don't think it's necessarily an adamant deck. I know your first trophy was like a true adamant mono blue deck, right? Mm-hmm. But I think the main version of mono blue that we've seen trophying is mono blue mill with merfolk secret keeper in multiples as the catch them all that's the 04 that mills for when you cast its adventure as well as didn't say please the one blue blue counter spell that mills three when you counter your opponent's spell so all of blues commons sort of work together really synergistically if you can get a lot of copies of merfolk secret keeper to really be a very good control mill deck yeah i agree i think that's definitely much more common the secret keeper didn't say please run away together all that good stuff Next up, we got black. What's going on there? Okay, so black's adamant bonuses are small. You've got Lockthwain Paladin being the highest upside of it being a four mana, four, three menace rather than just a three, two if you don't have the adamant. Um, The food token from Foreboding Fruit, as we talked about last week, is actually quite relevant. And the last black card that has adamant is Cauldron's Gift, which is the four and a black, like return a creature from your graveyard to the battlefield. But the adamant is you can mill four first. That card's poop soup, right? Card is pretty poop soup, and the adamant isn't really much of a bonus in my opinion. But I think it's interesting here to talk about things like Bacon to a Pie versus Reeve Soul, as Bacon to a Pie can feel like an adamant card as well, as can a lot of strong double-pipped cards that exist over all the colors. But I think Bacon to a Pie as something that like you probably want to have multiples of if you're in black it's going to be one of like the things you're going to feel good about as being one of the best commons and you're just not going to be able to reliably cast that or cast that when you want to or cast that and something else when you have eight swamps nine swamps even like you really want again to be like 10 or more swamps in those decks Right. And I've had discussions with Twitch chat when I've been streaming about that, specifically bake into a pie, right? They say, you know, you normally run 9-8 and you'd run bake into a pie in a 9-8 mana base with only eight swamps. Mm -hmm. But the problem with that line of thinking in this format is everyone else's mana bases are going to be better than that if they're building their decks right. And if Mm -hmm. you don't have as good of a mana base as your opponent, you're just going to have a lower win rate over the course of time. Yes. Well, and I think just 9-8 is a great example of a mana base that I think you actively want to be avoiding in this format. And so when you're talking about like, well, if it's a 9-8 mana base, it's just like, yeah, but that is out of the rule book in Throne of Eldraine. Right. Absolutely. And I think if you take a look at mono black as a deck, there's a lot of recursion loops that can go on with Barrow Witches. That's the 3-4 Gravedigger for a knight. Forever Young is the 2 mana. Put any number of creature cards from your graveyard on top of your library, then draw a card. And Order of Midnight is the uncommon gravedigger with flying and can't block as the adventure. Um, so those three can really get a loop-de-doop grind fest going on that's pretty unbeatable into the late game if you don't have a way to compete with the card advantage. I've also seen a mono black food payoffs deck do very, very well. Um, but I have not drafted mono black myself yet. I have drafted mono black. I think I trophied with it too. Uh, it's super grindy. Like I had a, a version that had that sort of like all that graveyard recursion with the barrow which is forever young in order of midnight but i definitely think the food payoff deck is very real the the witch that can sack a food to 
drain three from your opponent, not drain three, but have your opponent lose three life is pretty big game and has often felt like a card that I've like needed to kill on site a lot of the time. I agree. That card is impressed. What's going on with red? Red's adamant commons are pretty strong. You get a lot of damage boost. Uh, so searing barrage, the four and a red instant speed deal five. And then if you have adamant, it deals three to the opponent. That's really big payoff for being heavy red, as well as an extra damage off of slaying fire at uncommon. That's the two red instant that can deal three to any target. And if you trigger adamant, it does four instead. Emberth Paladin, I know you're not super high on this one, but I have liked it a fair amount in mono red. That's three and a red for the four one haste. And if you cast it with adamant, it's a five two instead. A four mana five two haste is really good. It's a knight as well. And mono red definitely wants to beat down. It's a super aggressive deck that really wants to have a lot of knight synergy from what I've seen. Yeah, I'm still not sold. Maybe I just got bad luck with it early on, but I tried to draft a mono red deck on arena, I think, during the early access event and had some of these. Well, that was your mistake. Well, I know playing on arena was my mistake. Sorry, listeners. We'll get we'll get to bot drafting in this format. In a Sorry, Watsy. We don't mean it. Keep inviting <laughs> us to the, to the early release. But anyway, I wasn't really impressed by the Emberth Paladin. I just felt like everyone had two power creatures around. Like it, this was just like trading with a two drop a lot of the time. Yeah, I think you're trying to set it up to where it can get in, or yeah. you've got tactician to push through damage. I think you've got to pick your spots with it. Sure, that makes total sense. I mean, red surprise to no one is. The identity here is that it really wants to be an aggressive deck. And I think uh, a light knight synergy is going to exist there as well. Absolutely. And then if we look at green, green, I think, gets the biggest boost from Adamant. So you get an extra point of power and toughness on Garenbrig Paladin, which is already big because it's hard to block the like five mana four four can't be blocked by creatures with power two or less i have found that card to be really hard to deal with on my opponent's side of things the indestructible on out muscle has been big game and i think we got to get there ben we got to talk about it out muscle is the number one green common ahead of fierce witch stalker yeah i was there last week and you're on board now yeah didn't take me too long past it but uh i got my hands on some green cards and i was like oh yeah out muscle is the real deal and getting double regrowth on once in future as the third adamant payoff so that's the uncommon lets you return a card from your graveyard to your hand and then another card put it on top but if you have the adamant bonus you get both cards from your graveyard just into your hand that's all three really good bonuses yeah i think once in future is a point for you too from our crash course oh sweet good to hear and i think again fear switch stalker gets another nod of being a double pipped card at four mana that feels kind of like an adamant card in disguise as well yep because you really although that one you would play in green white like i that a four drop versus i guess ah, that's weird because bacon to a pie is a four drop it's tough i think like you got to be like 10 8 before i'm excited about witch stalker but like if i'm 10 7 or 11 7 i'm probably looking for a way to cut it from my white green deck if green isn't my base color i think it has also just underperformed its stats somehow just in general not even considering mana cost as well. I think in decks where you don't care about the food, it's not as good. But when you do, when you can use the food or you feel like you're racing and the three life is going to be relevant, that's when I think Fierce Witch Stalker really shines. Right. I've had a very good mono green deck that was almost all in on food and splashed like two black cards. And I think there's also a mono green beatdown deck floating around out there. I have not drafted it myself. But I've seen trophy pictures in the Lords of Limited Discord. Yeah, with that, that, that one drop that's really like a one mana 2-2, two, two, the Rosethorn Halberd, and the 3-1 that can like sack a food to make a creature block it. All those cards are super aggressive. Okay, Ben, we're talking about all the great reasons to draft monocolor decks in the format. 
What are some words of advice of people to be wary about this or being careful when we're drafting monocolor decks? I just want to make sure we're upfront about like, this is not the end all be all and you shouldn't just try to force monocolored every draft. I have seen a lot of bad monocolored decks out of my opponents where, you know, like their 17th through 23rd cards are just like borderline unplayable because they were trying to get there on monocolored. So just words of warning here. So I think the first thing to be wary of is that if you're trying to go monocolored and you go pretty hard at the beginning of the draft, it's sometimes difficult to audible out of monocolored, especially if you picked a lot of CCC or CCCC cards really highly, like those four, four CMC uncommons or the three CMC rares. Sometimes if you've got multiples of those and you spent your high picks on them, you don't have a lot of flexibility at the end of pack one, which I value pretty highly in this format is the ability to audible into and out of decks. I would also say don't go totally monocolored just to say that you did it or like to be like, oh, cool, found my lane or like this is like the thing that I'm supposed to be doing in this format and I did it. Lots of monocolored decks, as we've said, are actually splashing like two to three cards that go well with the color pair synergy. So again, 12-5, 12-6 mana bases, 13-5, 13-4, like all that stuff, you're essentially monocolored but you're taking advantage of a couple powerful splash cards. Right, you get the best of both worlds. You get to cast those triple CMC or quadruple CMC cards, but you also get powerful cards in your other slots because you have a good mana base. Yeah. I think the last thing is just remember to be really flexible in the draft portion when you're trying to go monocolored. So I think there's a lot of times where you end up going two colors after starting monocolored because your color that you were trying to go monocolored dried up. And just a word of caution that you don't want to force it. And I think the most important thing to think about when you're starting monocolored and you're trying to ask yourself, should I continue down this monocolored path? Is just opportunity cost for what cards you're passing to try to stay monocolored. So for example, you know, I think just about replacement level. You're supposed to take cards that are above replacement level really aggressively in this format over fillerish type cards in your colors or color pair, because I think you get so heavily rewarded for finding an open color pair or an open synergy or an open archetype. So let's say you're trying to go mono green and you have a choice between something like you know pick five trapped in a tower or Garenbrig paladin the the adamant five five like it's tempting to say okay i'm mono green i should take this five drop common mono green card but Garenbrig paladin is filler and trapped in a tower is significantly although it pains me to say it it's, significant, <laughs> it's significantly above filler and you should take that and feel out of whites open and if it is great you're going to be happy you have a trapped in a tower if you end up mono green anyway cool, you're not going to miss Garenberg Paladin. So I think opportunity cost is the rule of thumb to keep in mind for what you're trying to feel out when you're trying to stay monocolored or not. Because the thing is, is that if mono green is what you're supposed to do, things like Garenberg Paladin should come to you later, should wheel out of that pack even. So just keep that in mind. All right. One of the reasons that I think these monocolor decks are so viable, not necessarily so powerful, but so viable is the abundance of colorless cards that we can take during the draft. And I think it's sort of important important to look at which ones we're prioritizing and when and why. And top of this list, I tweeted this out earlier this week, I said that I think both Scalding Cauldron and Golden Egg need to be in the conversation for best commons in the set or among the like top five best commons in the set. Not because of the power level of the cards in game, though I think they do both serve quite a strong role in game, but for the flexibility they give you during the draft. So Scalding Cauldron being single mana for an artifact, pay three, tap, deal three damage to a creature, or tap and sacrifice it to deal three damage to a creature. And Golden Egg is two mana, 
cantrips, and then it's essentially a food token, but it can also be used to filter a single mana one time. You can sacrifice it to filter a mana. Can I get an amen? Both those cards are great. I've been singing Golden Eggs praises for about the last two weeks, and Scalding Cauldron has rocketed up my pick order the more I've started to value flexibility. Yeah, so I think it's I think both of these cards bear a little bit of a conversation because of how much they're influencing our drafts at the moment, Ben. So I just want to like lean into these cards and my experience with them so far. So Cauldron, we've talked about, I mean, we talked about why this looks like Vial of Dragonfire, but isn't. One mana up front is very, very flexible. And in three mana, deal three is good. Now, look, I understand that this gets like a slight knock, like it's worse than Scorching Dragonfire, obviously. Your opponent knows about it. It's on the battlefield. It's four mana in installments. Like it's not that cheap, but it is colorless. It gives you removal for a lot of things in this format, a lot of things you're interested in killing in this format. And it's an artifact itself, which, you know, not only being colorless delays your decisions, yada, 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 but there's stuff in the format that cares about having artifacts in play. And I think that's also relevant. And I think it gives removal to colors and decks that shouldn't have access to getting something off the board. Like blue takes a scalding cauldron and gets to kill something dead as opposed to trying to, you know, lock it down or tap it or whatever. I think that's super big game and it lets you delay your draft decisions. Scalding cauldron is going to make your deck 100% of the time and it's a very, it's above filler. It's like a C plus type card. Yes, I had a really tough decision. Pack one, pick one. I'm interested to hear your thoughts. I'm going to put you on the spot here. I had Scalding Cauldron versus Lock Dragon. Pack one, pick one. That's Scalding Cauldron for me 10 out of 10 times. That's not even particularly close because I feel like the dragon is pretty committing and I think they're close on power level. Right. I mean, my argument was I was like, in a blue-red deck, the dragon's probably a B plus, but Cauldron is a C plus. And then you have to give it some sort of bump of power level for being a colorless card that I'm starting off my draft with. I go, great. I take this card. I'm going to be playing it 100% of the time. Right. It's, it's funny too. Like its grade probably goes down over the course of the draft. Yes. I think that's also something to consider. And I think they're also not great in multiples. Like maybe if you're in blue, you're happy with three, but I've had an awkward tension. You know, if you're in a red deck, you need this less because you have burn, you have scorching dragon fire in black. You need this less because you have reeve soul, but pack one, pick one. You don't know what you're doing and you do know that this will make your deck hundred percent of the time. Right. Same thing for golden egg. And I think it's a little less good than scalding cauldron, but it just depends. If you value the card draw synergy, golden egg is outstanding. If you value the fixing, golden egg is outstanding. And odds are you're going to value one of those two things, especially because golden egg lets you delay the decision. It helps you be monocolored because it's an artifact. And a lot of times these quote unquote monocolored decks want to splash two to three cards. And golden egg is just a free source for that. The cantrips, it's an artifact that sits on the battlefield, which is valuable in this format. It just does it all. Yeah. And it makes Flutterfox flying. No, but also it's just an artifact that like synergizes with all the things that care about having artifacts or having enchantments. So that's our spiel. So take a lot of those thoughts about like why these cards are good in terms of it's colorless. So it's going to delay your decision. It's going to turn on things that care about artifacts and enchantments, yada, yada, yada. And that's going to apply to a lot of the cards we're going to talk about. But those cards are the top tier commons. What's going on in this middle tier of the common artifacts? Hengewalker, that's the three drop. That's a centaur courser. If you have adamant, ginger brute, I'm not convinced that this one's in the middle tier myself, but that's the one mana one one. Can't catch me. I'm the gingerbread man. Can pay one mana to make it unblockable except by things with haste. And it's also a food token that you can sacrifice and then jousting dummy this card i think gets 
a lot of hate because it looks like cards that have been bad in the past, but Jousting Dummy is just totally fine. Two mana, two one, knight, colorless artifact creature, and you can pay three mana to give it plus one plus oh until EOT. Second hand smoke breathing, patent pending. <laughs> uh, our number three section here, sort of curve fillers. You've got signpost scarecrow, the two four vigilance that can, you can pay two to filter a mana. This can help with a light splash as well. And also it's like fairly good stats, you know, for similar reasons why like one three is a good stat line. Two four vigilance, pretty good. And profit of the peak, which is the six mana five five ETB scry two. If you need a finisher, if you want a six drop, like a five five is big game. Scry two is good. Like this card's totally serviceable and you should, you'll be able to get it if you want it. Moving on to the bad. Some of these still have applications, but generally you're hoping to not put these in your deck. Crashing Drawbridge is the one I'm most excited about. That's two mana for the 0-4 that can tap to give creatures haste until end of turn. Blocks well, helps you turn the corner late. Lock the Wayne Gargoyle, Roving Keep, Weapon Rack. Not super exciting. No. Moving on to the uncommons, I'll tell you what is super exciting. Clockwork Servant, and I think a pet card of both yours and mine, Sorcerer's Broom. I love that guy so much. Two mana for the two one, and whenever you sacrifice any other permanent, you can pay three mana to make a copy of Sorcerer's Broom. Oof, I had a blue-white artifacts deck with two Sorcerer's Broom and a Witch's Oven, and I loved it. Sorcerer's Broom, Witch's Oven, plus the cat is the Holy Trinity. That deck is so fun. And... Just a moment to talk about Clockwork Servant, which we've already sung the praises of. This is the three mana two three. If you pay adamant for it, you draw a card when it enters the battlefield. So if it's a monocolor deck or near monocolor deck, this is just three mana two three draw a card, which is fantastic. And in any two color deck by turn five, you're going to be able to pay, pay the adamant cost as well. And then cards like, you know, Golden Egg help you cast this for the adamant cost as well. But it's just a can tripping colorless card. And that makes it such a very, very powerful early pick in a draft. Yeah, moving on to the build arounds, Lucky Clover, although I think this just might be in the top tier. It's two mana artifact. And whenever you cast an adventure, you copy the adventure ability. Mm -hmm. If you had told me this was going to be a great card in this format, I probably gave this an f or like a d yeah in my grades if i went back and looked lucky clover is real good it's very very good i mean i think that you still want some stuff that's not just combat tricks to be copying but even then like it's very strong and this plus the innkeeper are such huge adventure payoffs have you done lucky clover plus make your opponent discard for you i haven't yet have you I have not, but I really want to live that dream. I, and I also haven't had it happen to me yet, but I know I will be so sad when it does. <laughs> Witch's Oven is also on the build around list, sort of in the wombo combo category with Sorcerer's Broom and the Cat. Heraldic Banner we've talked about is a great mono colored payoff, especially in the mono white, mono green, mono red beatdown type decks where they give your team plus one plus oh. Yeah, I just think Witch's Oven... And a lot of these cards are just really good picks early in a draft because of all we talked about, delaying your decision. But especially when they're in this build around category, they're also good to take early because that's when you have the opportunity to maximize them. I think the best one is Sorcerer's Broom, but I don't mind specking on a Witch's Oven because if you've got the Witch's Oven, Sorcerer's Broom's so much better when you see it. Yeah, but Sorcerer's Broom is just good. Like people should just be playing it in almost every deck. Like you're telling me you don't have a food token floating around or a golden egg or something, and then it's just a two mana two one. No, I agree. Yeah. Uh, looking at tier three, which is just serviceable cards, we've got Enchanted Carriage. I get a lot of questions about this on stream, and like, I don't know how to feel about it. I'm like, this is just fine. It's like a solid C. I'm not taking it highly, but I'm also not mad to play it. This is the five mana four four vehicle. It makes two one ones when it comes into play, and it has a crew cost of two. I think uh, it's a little better than that myself. 
It's better than C? Yeah. No way. It puts down two 1-1s one and a 4-4 four four for five mana at colorless. You're, that's making your deck most of the time, right? I don't think... I think the five mana thing is the thing that makes me hard to get excited about this card like it's good and i'm i feel like i'm around like pick five pick six is when i'm like sure i'll take this yeah that's it that's like a c to me i think i think it gets a bump for being colorless i think that's what it is i think it gets the colorless bump all right give it the colorless bump up to c plus fine uh also looking at spinning wheel which has a sort of underperformed from what i thought this is the three mana mana rock that you can pay five and tap it to tap target creature um, but it's, again, totally fine. Delays your decision, yada, yada. Shambling Suit, the three mana 03 that gets a plus one, plus 0 for each artifact or enchantment you control. And then last in the bad category, poor Pinocchio hanging out by himself. Inquisitive Puppet, the one mana 02 that you can sacrifice to make a 1-1 one, one human token. I think I finally have it out of my system that I think that this combos with the broom. I'm like, well, at least you can combo with the broom. Like, nope, you don't sacrifice it. You exile it to make a one one. Yeah. Pinocchio is a no go. So now we're going to take a look at this is a really cool idea by you. And now we're going to take a look at monocolor draft situations. So we've handpicked this isn't round tables necessarily, but we've handpicked like decision points in a draft where you're trying to decide to be monocolored or not. So why don't you outline the first one for us here? Okay, so rather than starting the draft in the beginning, we're going to go to these decision points. So the cards in your pile are you have stolen by the Fey, which is blue, blue, X, sorcery. You bounce target creature with converted mana cost X, and you make X, one, one, blue fairy creature tokens with flying. And then Revenge of Ravens is the other card in your pile. Everyone knows this card, three and a black enchantment. Whenever a creature attacks you or a planeswalker you control, its controller loses a life and you gain a life. So you got those two cards. And then you're looking at a pack where the cards in consideration are really just at the uncommon level. We've got uh, Drown in the Lock, which is blue, black. For an instant, you choose one. You either counter target spell with CMC uh, equal to or less than the cards in its controller's graveyard, or you destroy a creature with CMC equals to or less than the cards in its controller's graveyard. There's Deathless Knight, which is the black-green quadruple hybrid card. It's a 4-2 skeleton knight with haste. Whenever you gain life for the first time each turn, if it's in your graveyard, you can return it to your hand. And then Covetous Urge, the blue-black hybrid uncommon, which is a sorcery to look at target opponent's hand. You can choose a card from their hand or from their graveyard. You exile it, and then you can cast it for as long as it remains in exile, and you can spend mana as though it were mana of any color to cast it. Yeah, I think so. Ultimately, you're trying to decide between the two blue-black gold cards here. You've got insanely powerful blue and black cards already. Stolen by the Fae and Revenge of Ravens are both excellent cards. I think the tempting thing is to say I'm blue-black. I'm going to take this blue-black gold card that's a removal spell. Mm -hmm. But I think Covetous Urge actually keeps you more flexible here because you can play it in straight blue-black. But if you also go down a mono-colored route, you can play it in mono-blue with Stolen by the Fae and still splash Revenge of Ravens. Or you could play it in mono-black and probably not be casting Stolen by the Fae if you're really heavy black, but who knows? Right. Yeah, this was something that happened on stream, and I think there were a lot of people who were like, okay, great, blue rare, busted black on common, and now we have a blue-black gold card. And I was like, well, Covetous Urge is also a blue-black gold card and actually delays my decision even more is actually a more flexible card despite how, you know, restrictive its mana cost looks. So moving on a couple picks deeper from that draft. So we have Stolen by the Fae, Revenge of Ravens, Covetous Urge, and Scalding Cauldron. You now have pick five. And I think the cards that are really interesting to note here is that there's an out muscle, the three and a green sorcery. You put a plus muscle one counter on a creature you control. It fights target creature you don't control. If you have the adamant bonus, the creature you control gains indestructible until end of turn. And you have that versus 
a clockwork servant, which is the three mana, two, three colorless artifact creature. But if you pay the adamant cost, you draw a card when it enters the battlefield. I think charmed sleep would also be in consideration for a lot of people here. It's not for me at all, but I think worth mentioning that one blue, blue enchant creature and tap enchanted creature and it doesn't untap during its controller's untap step. Yeah, absolutely. I think that in a normal draft format would look like an obvious pick here. You're drafting blue, black, you know, take the charm sleep, take the removal spell. I just don't think that works because I don't think, first of all, it's as powerful as Clockwork Servant and it doesn't keep you anywhere near as flexible. And so tempting maybe to branch out without muscle here as well. But Clockwork Servant makes your deck 100% of the time and often cantrips. Yep, I agree completely. And so how did this draft end up for you? So I ended up mono black splashing one trail of crumbs here. Uh, So 13 swamps and four forests. Yeah, I got a Clackbridge Troll here, a Sir Conrad the Grim. This deck was pretty decent. And, you know, I didn't pigeonhole myself and ended up getting a card that's very splashable and very powerful in the trail and just uh, having that as my single green card. Yeah, very cool. Next draft we've got here, this is another one of yours. So the first card you've got in your pile here is Brazen Borrower, one blue-blue for the 3-1 Flash Flyer Mythic Rare and has the adventure of you can return any non-land permanent and opponent controls to its owner's hand and can only block creatures with flying. So pick two, you've got a choice between the following cards. There's Clockwork Servant, Covetous Urge, Drown in the Lock, and I think those are the only real three in contention here because they're better than all the commons in the pack. Yeah, it's a you know it's a, another very similar pick to the one that we experienced two before with the like covetous urge and drown in the lock when you have a blue card already. But I think it's again important to hammer this home. So like you see Brazen Bar where you're like, well, I really want to play blue, so I probably just take covetous urge here maybe. But like, yeah, covetous urge is a more powerful card than Clockwork Servant if you can cast it. But that if you can cast it is a big deal. You just take Clockwork Servant here like ten out of ten times because. It's going to be good in all your decks and in monocolor decks, it's going to be busted. And I don't know that I'm going to get to be blue. Like I'd love to play Brazen Borrower, but if I don't get to play blue, I'm going to be thrilled that I didn't take something committing like Covetous Urge or Drown in the Lock here and took something flexible like Clockwork Servant. Absolutely. All right. Next draft decision here. Your first pick is Epic Downfall, which is the one in a black sorcery to exile a creature with CMC three or greater. And then you look at a pack with the following cards as options. There is a golden egg. There's not really any black cards to speak of to go with your epic downfall other than Doom Foretold, which is the uh, two white black enchantment rare. That's sort of the symmetrical effect of you sacrifice non-token, non-land permanence until someone doesn't. And then the player who has the Doom Foretold gets a bunch of goodies and the player who doesn't gets a lot of not goodies. Um, So we've got that as your rare. There's a golden egg. And then I think Fierce Witchstalker is probably the best other card here. The two green green four four trampler makes a food token when it comes into play. Yeah, I think this is an interesting pick. I think the best card in the pack probably on power level is Fierce Witchstalker, but I don't even know that that's true. I think Golden Egg is close to the power level of Fierce Witchstalker, mostly because it gets so much of the power level bump from being colorless. But I do think it's the pick here. You don't know that you're going to get black to be able to play Epic Downfall and picking Golden Egg this highly virtually guarantees that you're going to get to play Epic Downfall regardless of whatever happens the rest of the draft. And I think that's super powerful in and of itself because Fierce Witchstalker is just sort of fine. And then if you end up green, you might not be able to splash the Epic Downfall. Whereas Golden Egg says, I get to play my first pick. Yeah, I agree. I took Witchstalker at the time and then I sent you like part of this draft log and you're like, well, I would have taken Golden Egg second. 
And I, at the time, I was like, that's crazy. And then I was like, nope, that makes total sense to me. And that's when I started taking Golden Egg much higher than I already was. Yep. Golden Egg is the truth. So moving on, you have Epic Downfall. And you know, let's say you either have Golden Egg. I have Fierce Witch Dark in my pile. But and then pack three... Your options are, you know, if you have the Witch Stalker, there's a green card, there's Twin Veil Tree Folk, which is the five and a green six five. The adventure is to put two plus one plus one counters on a creature. Uh, a number of black cards, there's Tempting Witch, the one three that makes a food and you can shoot food at your opponent. Malevolent Noble, the two two that you can sacrifice other things to put counters on it. And Foreboding Fruit, the draw two, deal two. There's a heraldic banner at uncommon, uh, the three mana rock that lets you choose a color and give creatures of that color plus one plus oh, and the red white hybrid card in fireborn knight, which is the two three double strike, and you can pay four red white hybrid to give it plus one plus one until end of turn. Yeah, I think this is interesting. I think you could make a case for a lot of different cards here. Mm-hmm. I think the most rawly powerful card in the pack is the fireborn knight. I think with the epic downfall and the fierce witch stalker, you could certainly make a case for the witch, the one three that makes a food token and then can deal three when you sacrifice a food token. That card has been moving up in my pick order, especially if I feel like I have any food synergies at all, Mm -hmm. which looks like a nice start to a food deck here. I think if I've got golden egg, I'm taking fireborn knight here because I think it's the most powerful card and I have no idea what direction the draft is going to go for me yet. I think if I'm you and I've got Epic Downfall and Fierce Witch Stalker, I think I would be on Tempting Witch. See, and I want to make the argument for even if you take Witch Stalker here, you've got to be open to the powerful cards. Like if you're going to be black green food, you should be able to get some Tempting Witches, you know, or whatever you want. You want Foreboding Fruit, you want Malevolent Noble to sack the food. I don't know what you want, but all these cards are, yeah, they're, they're good. They're playable. But I don't want to be taking them third and pigeonholing myself. And I think this is a danger you can get into. You're like, well, I've got Epic Downfall. I've got Fierce Witch Stalker. I'm going to take a black card here and I'm going to try and go black green food. We're like, there's a Fireborn Knight here. And if Mono Red, Mono White or Red White Aggro are open, you are going to be so bummed that you pass that card. Yeah, you're right. I would take Fireborn Knight. You convince me. Yeah, I I just think this is a, a great point to highlight staying open, but also how highly I think you and I are valuing most of these hybrid cards. Next draft here, you have a lot of cards here for a very tough pack one pick one. So cards in contention are any of the uncommons. I think there's red cap melee, single red for the instant deals four damage to target creature. If you dealt it to a non red creature, you have to sacrifice a land. There's Foulmire Knight, single black for the one one death touch and had an adventure for two and a black instant draw a card, lose a life. There's Fairy Vandal, one in a blue for the one, two flash flyer. And if you draw your second card in a turn, you put a plus one, plus one counter on it. I think your rare is also in consideration here. Fabled Passage, that's the Evolving Wilds at rare that you can tap, sack it, search up a land. And if you have four or more lands, you get that land into play untapped. Yeah, I was going between the power level of the three uncommons over the land, but I agree that the land is in consideration there. I have no idea what's correct here. And I almost feel like it just like came down to preference or like what I was feeling like doing. And I was feeling like drafting some value adventure goodies. And I took Falmire Knight. But I really think any of those three are very reasonable. So how much better than Fabled Passage or Golden Egg do you think those are? Like, are they are they good enough? Like Fabled Passage and Golden Egg are going to make your deck 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. Well, Golden Egg does a lot more than Fabled Passage does, I think. So... I don't think Fabled Passage is on the level 
with that. Like it's going to be an ETB tapped land for the first three turns. And I can't get behind that because I'm so down on all the adamant lands for that reason. And then by the time it's turn four, like, yeah, that's still fine. Like I'm not mad about having the ability to search up a splash land if I'm a heavy base color deck or, you know, be able to fix my mana, or maybe I can splash. Maybe Fabled Passage enables me to play one of the few decks that can actually splash. But I think the other three cards are enough better than it that I wasn't thinking about it. I think I'd almost be on, I think I would be on Fabled Passage here myself. Wow. I think if I were, I think if I were deciding between the three uncommons, I think I would be on Red Cap Melee. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I don't know what the right pick is i mean they're all really strong on commons but just to show like how highly we're valuing this flexibility there's a golden egg in the pack and at this fabled passage at rare and they're both probably also in contention as well and i think that's because it's early in the draft i think later on if you're any of those three colors you're taking those three cards over golden egg not close yes how high we are in these cards does get lower and lower as the draft progresses so keep that in mind as well moving on in this draft uh so i took the Foulmire knight and then I got past a Bone Crusher Giant, which is awesome. That's the Red Adventure Rare, the 4 3 for 3 mana. And it has Stomp, which is 1 and a red to deal 2 to any target at instant speed. And then a Bell of the Brawl, which is the 3 mana 3 2 in black with Menace, that when it attacks gives all your other knights plus 1 plus 0. So two black cards, a red card, a couple adventures. Uh, a little bit of night synergy, maybe. What do we got going on in pick four? Well, not very much in our colors. The best red card is the Raging Red Cap, best and only red card. That's the two and red one, two double strike. Um, Prophet of the Peak at Colorless. A bunch of blue cards, the best of the bunch probably being Tome Raider, the two and a blue one, one with flying when it ETBs you draw a card. And then there's a Sorcerer's Broom at Uncommon. Yeah, I think this is a windmill slam dunk Sorcerer's Broom. That card has gone up in my estimation power level wise and it's colorless. And it keeps you open. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I just grabbed that here. And I think there's something very tempting to go like, well, you know, we only have two black cards and a red card. Obviously, we'd like to play the Bone Crusher Giant, but don't need to be married to it. So we could take Tome Raider here and dip into another color. And I think that's a big no-no. I think Broom is just a more powerful card than Tome Raider intrinsically. And it's colorless, so it gets a bump from being colorless. Agreed. So I've got a couple cautionary tales here <laughs> for monocolored in my drafts. Um, so you're starting off a draft. You have, this is how your picks went. You went pack one, pick one, love struck beast. That's the two and a green five, five uh, with the adventure of making a one, one. And it can't attack unless you have a 1-1 creature. Pack 1, pick 2, Sir Farron the Hedgehammer. That's the green, green, 2-2 two, two legendary knight uh, that when it attacks, it gives target creature plus X plus X, where X is equal to Sir Farron's power. And then pack 1, pick 3, you went Sorcerer's Broom out of a pretty weak pack. And pack 1, pick 4, see the following cards as options. There is a Golden Egg. There's a Garen Briggs Squire, the 3 and a green, 3-2, and has the adventure of 1 and a green, Give a creature plus two plus two until end of turn instant speed. There's a witch's oven, the one mana tap sack a creature to make food. And if its toughness was four or more, you make two food tokens instead. There's a wander mare, one green white for the three three. And whenever you cast an adventure creature spell, you put a plus one plus one counter on wander mare. And there's also Sir Allen, the three white white for the four four first strike. And when Sir Allen attacks, gives your team plus one plus one until end of turn. And a Lucky Clover hanging out here as well, the artifact that copies adventures. This pack is stacked. This pack is stacked. This is really hard. So here's where I'm at right now, which is that I would take 
witch's oven to go with the sorcerer's broom and be happy to have that little colorless package in whatever deck I ended up in. But there is a lot of things I think you can talk about here. So the power level of Sir Allen is like on its own, probably the highest here, right? Like witch's oven is powerful paired with things, but on its own, Sir Allen is just a house. It is white, white, and it's a five drop. So um, those are like a, a couple knocks against it, but I think it's the most powerful card here. Then you've got some adventure payoffs and you've already got a really good adventure in Love's Dark Beast. So you could think about Lucky Clover or Wandermare or think about maybe taking one and trying to wheel the other. There's also a couple other adventures in the pack as well. So you could be thinking about taking one of the payoffs and wheeling one of those and going towards green white. You could also think about just taking golden egg and being like, cool, I'm just going to bide my time. I think there's some danger though with taking golden egg here when you do have so many powerful options. Like golden egg seems like, yes, it is going to delay your decision, but I think this is a pack where I want to make some kind of a decision, even if I get pushed off. Right. And I think this was for worth noting. I think this was before I knew how good Lucky Clover was. Mm -hmm. So would you be on Lucky Clover now? I don't think so. It's tempting, right? So having Lovestruck Beast and Sir Farron as a green green card and Sorcerer's Broom, it's tempting to say, I want to be mono green and to take something like Garenberg Carver here. Or I think Witch's Oven is totally defensible. I was hoping to wheel Witch's Oven. I think that's a, a card that you can wheel some amount of the time on MTGO. Yeah, maybe. I don't, I, I just can't risk it. <laughs> I want to make my food. <laughs> and so I think I, I ultimately ended up on Sir Allen as the most rawly powerful card here, thinking I would either play Sir Allen and probably be playing the Lovestruck Beast alongside of it and abandoning Sir Farron, or if white didn't continue to flow, that I would happily play mono green, but that I thought Sir Allen as such a powerful white card was a big signal, and I was going to try to follow that signal. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. Really, really interesting pick there. Yeah, and I did end up taking Sir Allen and then got rewarded with pack one, pick five, a mysterious pathlighter, the two and a white, two, two flyer, and whenever you cast a creature that has adventure that creature enters the battlefield with a plus one plus one counter on it. So out of a fairly weak pack that I would have been pretty sad if I had tried to go mono green, I guess you could take a two and veil true folk or something, but very clear that white was the way to go there. And I did ultimately end up in like true green, white, even split, not playing Sir Allen. Nice. And last draft here. Um, so cards in your pile are pack one, pick one, Torben Thane of Redfell. That's the one red, 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 two, four that we talked about earlier that gives all your red sources plus two damage. Pack one, pick two, you take a Scorching Dragonfire to go along with it. The one red instant speed deal three. And pack one, pick three, took Thrill of Possibility out of a very weak pack. That's the instant speed one in a red, discard a card, and then draw two cards. Can I just get on a soapbox here real quick about Thrill of Possibility? Sure. I see people playing this card in way too many red decks that aren't red, blue, I care about drawing two cards, or maybe it's a red-black, I care about drawing two cards. When you have an aggro deck like red-white or red-green, you do not want to put like flood insurance in your deck like this. Like I just see people being like, well, it like smooths out my draws. Like just you you don't want this stuff. You want to be playing stuff that affects the board or combat tricks. Like let Merchant of the Veil be your quote unquote flood insurance in those decks, maybe. But like this is not a card that should be making all of your red decks. I agree with that, I think. Yeah. I I I I don't like that card in, in my aggro decks. Anyway, sorry, go on. So you've got those three red cards. Pack one, pick four. See the following cards as options. There's a Raging Red Cap as the only red card in the pack. Two and a red for the one, two, Goblin Knight, Double Striker. And other good cards in the pack include Fierce Witchstalker, the two green, green, four, four, Trample, Make a Food Token, as well as the white, green, uncommon hybrid uh, the 2-2 two, two that taps to give all your creatures plus one plus one until end of turn and has the adventure to make two one one white tokens at instant speed. 
Yeah, that is currently my least favorite of the hybrid bunch, um, but it's still probably totally fine if you're in the green white adventures deck. Like I probably wouldn't cut it if I was in that deck. Um, so here it's kind of a stinker. Like I think there is a danger here to go, well, a mono red. So far, I have an incentive to be mono red in Torbrand. Like, that's a pretty strong incentive. And the double striking knight is pretty good with it. Like, three mana, one, two, double strike. So it could potentially deal six damage to your opponent if it attacks and isn't blocked. But, like, again, if you're red, you should be able to get those. Like, if this mono red is what your seat's supposed to do, you're going to get those cards. And I would hate to have myself just go down this red path just for Torbrand to only find out that, like, there are many other red drafters at the table and I should not be going all in here. Right. And this is, it boils down to opportunity cost, right? You're not going to miss red cap if you do end up mono red. And I think you will miss fierce witch stalker if green ends up being open and you have to move off of mono red. That concept is something that I think you and I both have really taken to heart. I think you and I really understand it. And we have like solid pick orders for ourselves to figure out when that's going to be the case. And I think we get the reps early to be able to like, you know, adjust those pick orders, et cetera. But like this is, I think, one of the biggest things you need to be able to know when you're drafting this format, which is the opportunity cost of certain picks. Like, where is the line for something like Raging Red Cap where it's like, look, this card will be good in my deck. Like, it's not like you'd be mad about having that card if you're mono red, you know, but you don't need to take it this highly. Like if red is what you're supposed to be doing, you'll see that card. Right. And then so just to illustrate where the rest of this draft went, pack one, pick five, I took the green, blue, two, two flyer that taps to add a green or a blue out of a fairly weak pack that had an ogre knight as the only red card in it. That's the three and a red three, four that when it attacks, you can give target other knight menace until end of turn. Mm -hmm. And then the next four picks, I took green cards thinking I was either going to be green, red, abandoning my Thorbin or mono green, and then ultimately wield the red cap, wield the ogre knight, and ended up mono red. So I like I was I trying to draft monocolored deck? Yes. But it takes you a lot of times if you do end up monocolored, it takes you a while before you know, okay, I'm monocolored. You make picks with it in mind and you try to hedge that way. But I think if you're doing it right, you're giving yourselves outs to either still be a two-color deck or pivot off of whatever you're doing. And that's why the drafts in this format feel so rewarding. So whereas things like, you know, Dominaria, where I was taking Skittering Surveyor high and like bobbing and weaving in a lot of ways that would make me play like three or four color decks sometimes, I'm bobbing and weaving in this format, but in a much different way. And I'm using the artifacts as these like pivot points to be able to delay my decision. And then I also get to play those artifacts in whatever deck I'm going to play. It's not like I'm delaying my decision and going, well, some of these artifacts will make a deck and some won't. It's like, no, these are all going to be good. Like if I'm taking the good ones, if I'm taking the Clockwork Servant and the Cauldron and the Golden Egg, like those are just going to be in my deck no matter what. And then the color or colors are going to fall into place later on. Yeah, absolutely. We've got a quick update to our top common rankings before we go here. White has stayed the same. Tactician 1, Trapped in a Tower 2, Flutterfox 3. Blue, we think we have like a fairly solid guess at the cards here. Neither you nor I have played mono blue much, but here's our hot take for the blue common rankings. And this has been backed up by a lot of very good players in our Discord. 
Number one, Merfolk Secret Keeper, single blue for the 04, and the adventure part of that is single blue, mill your opponent four cards. Number two is So Tiny, that's a single blue enchantment aura with flash enchanted creature gets minus two minus oh unless its controller has seven or more cards in its graveyard then it gets minus six minus oh instead and at number three tied we've got witching well that's the single blue when it etbs you scry two can pay three and a blue sack it to draw two cards and didn't say please one blue blue for the instant counter spell and opponent mills three and the thing is all four of those cards work so well together synergistically as a package that's trying to achieve the same goal. Let's you operate at instant speed, helps you work towards milling your opponent. Merfolk Secret Keeper turns on so tiny, didn't say please, helps enable the mill from Merfolk Secret Keeper as a real threat to win the game. It all works cohesively towards this goal. And then so tiny as a flash instant lets you hold up mana for witching well and didn't say please and helps you double spell the turns you want to hold up didn't say please like having four mana and holding up a so tiny and a didn't say please feels great because a lot of times the way you lose with those counter spell decks is your opponent getting underneath you and so tiny helps you catch back up against aggressive opponents agreed and then black no changes except smitten sword master coming in at the number three slot that's the one in a black two on lifelinker with the adventure of a single black to drain equal to the number of knights you control and then red all the same and green You've locked in out muscle at number one as well over for your switch stalker. Yeah, and then curious pair rounding it out at number three. I want to go draft this format so much right now. Well, you're in luck. You, you, it's early. You can play for a few hours, right? I think I might fire the stream back up. I think so. Oh, sick. Great. Well, that's excellent viewing for me as well. Uh, this set is so awesome. I cannot wait to get to dive into this. I hope... I feel about this set in a few weeks or a few months, how I do right now, which is just like so jazzed. I feel like the possibilities are endless. I'm like almost 40 drafts deep. I don't feel like I've scratched the surface yet. I agree. Format is super deep. Best of all time. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> That's a great place to wrap us up. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. If you want to check us out on Twitch and Twitter, Ben's about to go stream. Twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome for him. Twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware for me. You can check us out on those same usernames on Twitter, and you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. cannot say thank you enough if that is not a testament to the discord and our podcast i don't know what is amen get in there while you still can folks why you still can <laughs> i don't know <laughs> you, you still can people don't worry about it we'll, we'll, we'll save room for you <laughs>